Good morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters, coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL and pleased to be bringing you what we call the American view. That is the founders of our country, their view of law and government. You could summarize their view very simply with saying they believe there is a creator God. Secondly, that our rights come from him and from him alone. And thirdly, that the only purpose can underline that word, highlight that word, make it in bold and italics. The only purpose of human civil government is to protect and secure our God-given rights. Well, this is your host, Pastor David Whitney, and I serve as the senior instructor at Institute on the Constitution. And with me, my wonderful gentlemen scholars this morning, this wonderful Friday morning, Phil Duffy, our constitutional instructor, and Mike Jeremy, who we call our warrior in the courtroom, who defends the God-given right to keep and bear arms. And by the way, Mike has a great show just before ours on Friday morning, 7 a.m. Tune in to Mike G. in the morning, The Law Matters, and, and you'll learn a great deal uh, on, on his show there Friday morning. Well, we have completed a series on the Articles of Confederation. That is the first government that was at the federal level in our constitutional republic. So before the uh, Constitution was ratified and even considered. And uh, one of the great accomplishments of that Articles of Confederation government is, of course, they won the war. <laughs> they won the war with the largest superpower army and navy in the world of that day, Great Britain. And they can, uh, they formed a treaty with Great Britain that was highly advantageous to our country, uh, the Treaty of Paris. The third thing is probably the greatest success or the greatest accomplishment of that Articles of Confederation is what we're going to study next, and that is called the Northwest Ordinance. It was ad adopted on July 13, 1787, so in the midst of the same summer that the Continental uh, the, the, the Convention was meeting in Philadelphia to uh, propose a, a new constitution. In the midst of that summer, July 13, 1787, the existing Congress, that is the Congress under the Articles of Confederation, in their one house legislature, they proposed the Northwest Ordinance. It was chartered to create government for that territory north and west of the Ohio River. It essentially provided a method for admitting new states into the Union from that territory. And by the way, eventually the new states admitted were Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, Illinois, and well, the northeastern uh, portion of Wisconsin. And uh, some of the accomplishments of the Northwest Ordinance, the reason it's important to understand this, this sort of laid a pattern by which new states would be joining the Union under the new Constitution. So even though it was ratified, it was passed under the old uh, Articles of Confederation, it really became a pattern uh, for even uh, under the, the Constitution. And by the way, this idea that they had in the Northwest Ordinance, the background for that idea even goes back further. It goes back to 1784, and the principles that were outlined by Thomas Jefferson, who was the uh, chief drafter of the Ordinance of 1784, and that ordinance, uh, you know, there was others that were involved in writing that, probably Nathan Dane and uh, Rufus King, but it spelled out a plan that was subsequently used in each state joining the Union. 
Now, when we look at the Northwest Ordinance, there's three principal provisions that were accomplished by this document. First of all, there was a division of this Northwest Territory, that is northwest of the Ohio River, of not less than three nor more than five states. And we know ultimately there were five states that were formed in this area, Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, Illinois, and the northeastern section of um, Wisconsin and the northeastern section of Minnesota. And then secondly, this uh, provision was for a three-stage method for admitting a new state into the union. The first stage was there's a congressionally appointed governor, a secretary, and there's three judges to rule in the first phase. Then there was also an elected assembly, and uh, one non-voting delegate was sent to Congress, uh, to the U.S. Congress, to be elected uh, in the second phase when the population of the territory reached 5,000 free male inhabitants of full age, and then a state constitution would be drafted, ratified, and uh, membership in the union could be requested in the third phase, the third phase would happen when the population reached 60,000 in uh, the territory. Now, the third provision of this was that a Bill of Rights, protecting the religious freedom and the rights such as the writ of habeas corpus, the benefits of trial by jury, as well as other individual rights uh, in this Northwest Ordinance were secured for all of these new territories that ultimately uh, would become states in the Union. One other thing that was we're going to talk about is that it encouraged education in the Northwest Territory, and it also forbade slavery. And this is a huge step in this direction we see in the history of our country. The fight about slavery continued on back and forth, and this was one statement about slavery. In the Northwest Territory, there would be no slavery. Now, south of the the Ohio River, Kentucky and so on, Tennessee, there was going to be slavery until uh, 13th Amendment. But these were the three major accomplishments of the Northwest Ordinance. Well, let me introduce it by reading to you Section 1, which is short enough that uh, can be read. By the way, the actual title is An Ordinance for the Government of the Territory of the United States Northwest of the River Ohio. Section 1 reads, Be it ordained by the United States in Congress assembled that the said territory for the purposes of temporary government be one district subject however, to be divided into two districts as future circumstances may, in the opinion of Congress, make it expedient. So it started out as one district, but it could be divided into two separate districts. And that actually happened when Ohio was moving towards becoming a, a territory that was separate from the rest and became part of the Union in 1803, March 1st of 1803. So Ohio, the most uh, so, southeastern portion of the Northwest Territory, when it was becoming a state, then the rest of the ter territory was designated as the Indiana Territory. And actually, before Ohio joined the Union and became a state, this Indiana Territory was actually uh, signed into law by John Adams in 1800. So the history of this territory is very interesting because it, it, it goes way back at the very start of our constitutional republic. And the Articles of Confederation were the groundwork uh, that uh, laid the, the, the path for uh, the Northwest Ordinance to become law in our constitutional republic. Well, Mike, why don't you bring us your thoughts on uh, uh, Sections 2 and 3 of the Northwest Ordinance? Thanks, Pastor Whitney. You know, if you go ahead and read through Section 2, 
a lot of people going through it would need a little bit of translation, I think, because you, you read through it and it's filled with this legalese and these long run on sentences. So I'm going to go ahead and translate it for everybody who's listening. In, uh, in legal terms, it translates to. <laughs> 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 no, oh, that's a good not. summary. That's a good summary, Mike. <laughs> of course, I'm just joking. But a lot of times people read all this legalese language. And frankly, uh, many lawyers don't deal in this particular area of the law. So it's not something that they'd be familiar with. Now, throughout the course of my career, I've been dragged into a few states, particularly those having to do with firearms, because there's an extra uh, layer over there. So I've got a little bit of uh, working knowledge on this that I can bring to the table. Uh, basically, when you're talking about uh, the estates and people who are passing and what's being laid out over here is they wanted to figure out who gets what when somebody dies. And if you notice the first really long portion uh, and covers uh, approximately half of section two has to do with uh, those who die intestate, which means that they died without a will. So the government figures out what to do with that property when somebody didn't leave their express wishes. Now, I think that's a, a good warning for everybody who's listening, first of all, on a practical level, that if you don't have a will and you don't want the government to decide who gets your stuff, you ought to get a will. <laughs> so that's something that everybody should keep in mind. And you might wonder why do they have to go through all of these possible scenarios? And, uh, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be in one sentence the way it is over here. But if you read a lot of wills, uh, even those uh, where they have the person's desires being conveyed, they do sort of have all of these different possible scenarios. And the reason is when you're writing a will, you're preparing for what's sometimes known as the parade of horribles. And anything that can go wrong will go wrong. And the last thing you want is to have a scenario pop up that wasn't accounted for, uh, because then it gets left up to litigation arguing back and forth, and there's no clear-cut answer, and you might as well flip a coin. So that's why you have these sorts of things laid out uh, in these kinds of documents, and then, of course, in wills themselves. Now, the... Section two also makes clear uh, that they could uh, be the territory could the states could be devised or bequeathed by wills in writing. And they had a requirement that it be signed and sealed by the person uh, as long as they're full age and attested by three witnesses. And that's something that is often uh, adhered to today, even where you have witnesses when somebody's signing a will, uh, notarization can take the place of that under certain instances, and different states will have different laws. Uh, and even in some states, having it notarized uh, will make things a whole lot easier in the, the the probate portion after the fact if uh, you know, if you've got it notarized. And so different states will have different laws, and this is something we still account for today. There's still uh, another portion in Section 2 dealing with real estate transactions. That's something that wanted to be accounted for. And when you think about it, it's, it's kind of fascinating that uh, you're coming into something where you don't have laws already on the books by a legislature. You've got to figure something out and uh, you got to have at least the bare bones there because otherwise society can't function properly. Uh, moving on to section three, uh, 
Oh, I, I got one more comment about Section 2 in, in terms of the legalese and everything. When you're talking about how complicated these things get, and some people, I don't want our listeners to be discouraged when you hear this kind of stuff and say, you know, how could I possibly understand all this? I'm not a lawyer. And just to put this into perspective, a lot of lawyers don't understand this. And even when you go ahead and try to account for all of the possible contingencies, it doesn't always work out that way. And that's why lawyers end up in court arguing over what each individual thing means. And these kinds of things are subject of litigation constantly. Uh, there is rarely a statute that is written so plainly that nobody's got a disagreement. And frankly, when there is, those are really well-written statutes, but unfortunately, they're very, very rare, few and far between. Uh, so section... Section three, we've got uh, some land <laughs> uh, being provided for the residents, and this is not something that's uncommon. Uh, although a thousand acres, I don't think that we see that today. Uh, I've not gone ahead and done a survey of any uh, governor's mansions or anything of that nature, but that seems like a pretty good deal. Oh, thank you, Mike. Yes, uh, the land issue is is huge when we consider each element of this because uh, how this land was going to be settled, you know, and and uh, you know cultivated and ultimately be productive uh, became a huge issue. Well, uh, Phil, will you take us into section four through eight of the Northwest Ordinance? Uh, certainly, uh, the provisions of the Northwest Ordinance make more sense if we understand how the Northwest Territory came into existence and the question of unresolved debt from the War of Independence from Great Britain. There is a clue in the Declaration of Independence about the origination of the territory, and we find this statement in the list of grievances against King George III. King George III abolished the free system of English laws in a neighboring province establishing therein an arbitrary government and enlarging its boundaries so as to render it once an example and fit instrument for introducing the same absolute rule into these colonies. What neighboring province was Jefferson referencing? He was talking about the territory north and west of the Ohio River, what ultimately was known as the Northwest Territory, encompassing the present states of Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, Illinois, Wisconsin, and the northeastern part of Minnesota. In an effort to pacify French-speaking people in the province of Quebec, the British Parliament had enacted the Quebec Act of 1774, extending the boundaries of that province to include the Northwest Tor Territory. According to Britannica, the act was thus a major cause of the American Revolution and helped provoke an invasion of Quebec by the armies of the revolting colonies in the winter of 1775-1776. The issue was control of land. The Proclamation of 1763 prohibited British colonists from settling west of the Appalachian Mountains. But both land speculators and potential land buyers yearned to develop this land. That opportunity came when the government of the Articles of Confederation successfully negotiated the inclusion of the land to the Mississippi in the newly constituted United States. Two territories were established, the Southwest Territory, which ultimately became the states of Kentucky and Tennessee, and the Northwest Territory. 
In the Oxford history of the American people, Samuel Eliot Morrison related how the government of the Articles of Confederation sold huge land uh, tracts in 1787 to the Ohio Company of Associates, otherwise known as the Ohio Company, but not to be confused with an earlier Ohio Company formed in 1742, but then defunct. That the new nation was pressed for money is obvious. But what newly founded nation is not in debt after eight years of conflict on its own soil? It has been widely claimed that the federal government under the Articles of Confederation was weak because it had no independent source of income. Technically, that is correct. But the federal government under the Articles was land wealthy and could turn that land into a source of income. So let's look at Section 4 now with that background. Section 4 of the Northwest Ordinance states, There shall be appointed from time to time by Congress a secretary whose commission shall continue in force for four years unless sooner revoked. He shall reside in the district and have a freehold estate therein in 500 acres of land while in the exercise of his office. It shall be his duty to keep and preserve the acts and laws passed by the legislature and the public records of the district, and the proceedings of the governor in his executive department, and transmit authentic copies of such acts and proceedings every six months to the Secretary of Congress. There shall also be appointed a court to consist of three judges, any two of whom to form a court, who shall have a common law jurisdiction and reside in the district and have each therein a freehold estate in 500 acres of land, while in the exercise of their offices and their commissions shall continue in force during good behavior. Three secretaries were appointed between 1787 and 1803, when Ohio was detached as a state and the remainder of the area was designated as the Indiana Territory. One of those secretaries was William Henry Harrison, who had defeated Tecumseh at the Battle of Tippecanoe and subsequently was the eighth president of the United States for a mere 31 days before dying in office. They used the term freehold to describe the secretary and judge's right to 500 acres of property is curious because the Northwest Ordinance describes what today would be considered a non-freehold property usage for the secretary and judges since they were required to release the property when their terms of office came to a conclusion. It is interesting that the terms of office for secretaries extended a year beyond the governors and that they were separately appointed from the governors. With little opportunity for other observation of these uh, two officials, Congress felt it necessary to establish a certain balance of powers principle between them. Let's look at Section 5. Section 5 states, the governor and judges or majority of them, shall adopt and publish in the district such laws of the original states, criminal and civil, as may be necessary and best suited to the circumstances of the district, and report them to Congress from time to time, which laws shall be enforced in the district until the organization of the General Assembly therein, unless disapproved of by Congress, but afterwards the legislature shall have authority to alter them as they shall think fit. Wikipedia claims, initially the territory was governed by martial law under a governor and three judges. 
Clearly, that is incorrect. Since the Northwest Ordinance specifically states, the governor and judges, or majority of them, shall adopt and publish in the district such laws of the original states, criminal and civil, as may be necessary and best suited to the circumstances of the district. Let's look at Section 6. <clears throat> Section 6 states, the governor, for the time being, shall be commander-in-chief of the, of the militia, appoint and commission all officers in the same below the rank of general officers. All general officers shall be appointed and commissioned by Congress. This is not an affirmation that martial law was enabled by the Northwest Ordinance, but an extension of the accepted practice within the original 13 states that the governor was the commander-in-chief of the militia of that state. Likewise, this language merely extended powers of, of appointing officers by governors in, in the militia below the rank of general officers. Section 7. Section 7 states, Previous to the organization of the General Assembly, the governor shall appoint such magistrates and other civil officers in each county or township as he shall find necessary for the preservation of the peace and good order in the same. After the General Assembly shall be organized, the powers and duties of the magistrates and other civil officers shall be regulated and defined by the said assembly. But all magistrates and, uh, and other civil officers not herein otherwise directed shall during the continuance of this temporary government be appointed by the governor. This was a transitional form of governance that had led to representation by the European American people of the Northwest. Native Americans were considered to have their own national territories upon which European Americans were continually encroaching. The Transitional Assembly operated under the separation of powers principle, but Congress retained oversight because the governor and secretary reported to Congress and could be removed by that body. Let's look at Section 8. Section 8 stated, for the preservation, pardon me, for the prevention of crimes and injuries, the laws to be adopted or made shall have force in all parts of the district and for the execution of process, criminal and civil, the governor shall make proper divisions thereof, and he shall proceed from time to time as circumstances may require to lay out the parts of the district in which the Indian title shall have been extinguished into counties and townships, subject, however, to such alterations as may thereafter be made by the legislature. <clears throat> There's some history behind this reference to counties and townships, as described by Wikipedia. The Land Ordinance of 1785 was adopted by the United States Congress of the Confederation on May 20th, 1785. It set up a standardized system whereby settlers could purchase title to farmland and in the undeveloped West. Congress at the time did not have the power to raise revenue by direct taxation, so land sales provided an important revenue stream. The ordinance set up a survey system that eventually covered over three-quarters of the area of the continental United States. <clears throat> the earlier land ordinance of 1784 was a resolution written by Thomas Jefferson, 
calling for Congress to take action. The land west of the Appalachian Mountains, north of the Ohio River, and east of the Mississippi River was to be divided into 10 separate states. However, the 1784 resolution did not define the mechanism by which the land would become states or how the territories would be governed or settled before they became states. The Ordinance of 1785 put the 1784 resolution in operation by providing a mechanism for selling and settle <coughs> for settling the land. While the Northwest Ordinance of 1787 addressed political needs. So there are really three interlocking pieces of legislation that relate to the Northwest Territory. The first, Jefferson's initial resolution of 1785. Uh, the second, the creation of the formula for the establishment of counties and townships in the Ordinance of 1785. And three, the establishment of the uh, uh, pardon me, establishment of counties and townships in uh, Ordinance of 1785. And three, the establishment of the executive authority to implement the formula. So the philosophical foundation for governance of the Northwest Territory is directly attributable to Jefferson. The original draft of the Land Ordinance of 1784 contained five important articles. The new states shall remain forever a part of the United States of America. They shall bear the same relation to the Confederation as the original states. They shall pay their apportionment of the federal debts. They shall, in their governments, uphold Republican forms. After the year 1800, there shall be neither slavery nor involuntary servitude in any of them. The Land Ordinance of 1785 went into further detail. Land was to be systematically surveyed into square townships, six miles on a side, each divided into 36 sections of one square mile. These sections could then be subdivided for resale by settlers and land speculators. Section 16 in each township was reserved for the maintenance of public schools. Five of the 36 lots were reserved for government or public purposes. Sections number 8, 11, 26, and 29 in every township were reserved for future sale by the federal government when it was hoped they could bring higher prices because of the developed land around them. Congress also reserved one-third part of all gold, silver, lead, and copper mines to its use. We should reflect on that last point as it related to the claim by the Federalists that the government of the Confederation was financially weak. Yes, the Confederation government had a significant debt due to eight years of war on its own soil. But Europeans were no strangers to war and its financial effects. How would they project future income streams of the government of the Articles of Confederation. First, they would look at the huge expanse of the Northwest Territory, which doubled the size of the United States. 75% of Northwest land was available for sale immediately, and the supply of land speculators must have been overwhelming. 
the Confederation government had further set aside 11% of the total available land for deferred sale, when prices would have been even more attractive to the Confederation government. Land sales would not accrue to the government of the Articles of Confederation as a lump sum, but as a steady stream of income to be enjoyed over decades. Now let us put ourselves into the shoes of European financiers of that time. Let's assume that these financiers are considering the bonds of these governments, Britain, France, Spain, and the United States. Here's how they might evaluate those government bonds. Britain, huge expenditure for a military that lost an eight-year war with the United States. France, a series of three monarchs named Louis had left this nation in financial distress. If a revolution were to break out, which it did two years if the Constitution was framed by the Federalists in Philadelphia, there was a strong possibility a new non-monarchical government would default on the prior regime's bonds. Spain, in spite of its initial success in discovering the new world, Spain had failed to capitalize on this advantage, and their armada had been defeated by the British in 1588. Spain had been in a slow economic slide ever since. The United States had defeated the greatest military at the time, had six years to repair from the war, and had acquired additional lands from the British as a result of the Treaty of Paris of 1783. One part of that additional land, the Northwest Territory, was owned by the government of the Articles of Confederation and 75% was immediately available for sale to land speculators. Now let's look at the supply side of the money, uh, 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 the supply of money side of this investment picture. British bankers had been harmed by the interruption of trade that resulted from the War of Independence. But the official posture of the British government was to exercise economic sanctions against the United States in an attempt to bring it to its knees. Dutch bankers had no such reservations. French investors with any sense would have avoided investing in further French bonds, but would be willing to move their money offshore for safety reasons alone. Banking actions followed the financial incentives with the Dutch first to buy the the bonds of the United States government. The British were forced to follow the Dutch and sanctions were eliminated with British investment flowing toward the United States. The evidence demonstrated that the government of the Articles of Confederation was not weak in terms of its financial standing in the European investment community. To the contrary, it appears that the United States government was in the catbird seat. Uh, Indeed, you're right, Phil. And and, uh, so a lot of the Bluster we have uh, studied when we looked at the Federalist and the Anti-Federalist paper doesn't appear to be true, that there wasn't any great crisis, there wasn't a financial disaster, but I guess the PR machine of the Federalist was working very effectively uh, to persuade people, oh, we've got this great crisis and we can't let a crisis go to waste, as as we know. Well, anyway, Section 9 of the Northwest Ordinance talks about uh, when there are 5,000 free male inhabitants of full age in the district, upon giving proof thereof to the governor, they shall receive authority with time and 
place to elect a representative from their counties or townships to represent them in the General Assembly. So they set up a system whereby there was going to be representative government in the territories that eventually would become states. So even before they were states, there was still a representative government. Now, it's interesting to note how you qualified to be one of those 500 free males. Obviously, you couldn't be an indentured servant. You couldn't be a slave. Uh, and uh, in order for you to be that, you had to qualify as a representative. Uh, the representatives themselves had to be a citizen of the United States for three years, be a resident of the district they were being elected in, or else have resided in a district three years. And in either case, they had to hold in their own right in fee simple 200 acres of land within the same. So if you're going to be a representative in these territories that were in the Northwest, you were going to have to hold 200 acres land that you owned outright. And it's also interesting to note that uh, those who got to vote, those who were the electors, uh, they also had to have 50 acres of land in order to be able uh, to vote. And they had to have been there as a resident for at least uh, two years uh, to qualify as an elector. Now, we in our day would say, oh, that's terrible. You had to own land in order to vote. This is awful. But think of something that we are currently experiencing. And perhaps the easiest way to illustrate it is what about somebody who's on the welfare dole in our country? Do they get to vote? Oh, yes. So surely they get to vote. And what if all those on the welfare dole in our country, and that is they don't pay any taxes, they're recipients of tax revenues. What if everybody in, on the welfare dole, they voted together as a block? And what would they demand as a block of voters? Why more money out of your pocket into their pocket. Of course, that's what they're going to do. They're receiving welfare and they want more of the same, more money out of your pocket into their pocket. And so while we might often be critical of these kind of uh, land requirements for voting and for holding office, the truth of the matter is the people who held land were the people who paid taxes. And so you if you are paying taxes, that is, if you have some skin in the game, then yes, you got to vote. But if you didn't have any skin in the game, you didn't own any property, and therefore you weren't paying any uh, taxes, well, okay, you didn't get any skin in the game. But when you did obtain uh, 50 acres uh, to uh, be a voter or 200 acres to be a representative, then yes, you did have skin in the game. Uh, and so it would be wise then that uh, you get to determine where those monies that are gathered by uh, the tax man, where those monies actually go. I think our system is a very broken system where those who are receiving money from the government, federal, state or local government, uh, by welfare or by whatever other means, get to vote more money out of your pocket into their pockets. Well, that's that's Section 9 and what Section 9 deals with of the, uh, the Northwest Ordinance. Section 10 simply says the representatives thus elected shall serve for a term of two years. So exactly the same as uh, was in uh, the uh, uh, House of Representatives proposal in the Constitution, but not like the Articles of Confederation, because the Article of Confederation, when you went to Congress, you only served for one year and then you needed to stand for re-election. But a, a two-year term uh, for these representatives and, and provisions in Section 10 of what would happen if somebody died in office, et cetera, how they would be replaced. Now, Section 11, the General Assembly or legislature shall consist of a governor, a legislative council and a House of Representatives. So three parts of this. 
the uh, uh, the legislative council was to consist of five members and uh, Congress. The five members were, were uh, uh, voted on, but ultimately they had to each be appointed and approved by Congress. So Congress has some significant control over these territories. And then this, uh, the governor and this legislative council and the House of Representatives have authority to make laws in all cases for the good government of the district. Laws, by the way, not repugnant to the principles and articles in this ordinance established and declared. In other words, they needed to have a Republican form of government by representation. The laws that they passed had to be in accordance with uh, the uh, Northwest Ordinance. And when those bills were passed, of course, they had to be uh, approved of by the governor. And then the governor is given power to convene the the uh, assembly of legislators to prorogue them, which is that he could end a session of the legislature and to dissolve the general assembly when, in his opinion, it shall be expedient. Now, quickly on to Section 12, the office holders, governor, judges, legislative council, secretary, other officers as Congress, uh, they are to take an oath. That is, they are to swear before Almighty God an oath that endangers their immortal soul if they do not fulfill that oath. So like at the federal level, they must swear an oath. And uh, when they have sworn the oath, then they hold office. And they had another privilege to elect a delegate to Congress, the U.S. Congress, that is in Washington. And that congressman was not a full congressman. He would have a seat in Congress. He could actually have the right of debate but he had no voting powers during the period when this was a temporary government, not yet a state, so it was a territory. So they had some representation in Congress, but not full representation. And then finally, Section 13, giving us the purpose of the Northwest Ordinance for the extending the fundamental principles of civil and religious liberty. In other words, this was going to be a place where even before we had the Bill of Rights, even before our Constitution was considered and ratified, that it would extend civil and religious liberty in these Northwest territories based upon the republics and their laws and constitutions erected had to be in that form. And this uh, purpose was also to fix and establish those principles as the basis of all laws, all constitutions and governments in this territory. And then the, the final statement I want to highlight here in Section 13 is each new state that would come into the union, that is the union under the Articles of Confederation and later the union of our Constitution, was to come in on an equal footing with the original states. Here's the equal footing doctrine. And I talk about this in a DVD I've done on the federal land grab that this was not followed, that today the states that have entered the union subsequent to uh, uh, Ohio and the other states in this, often entered at a disadvantage to the 13 original states. And that disadvantage was largely that the federal government can continue to hold property in that state in violation of the Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, that says they can only hold property that is forts, magazines, dockyards, arsenals, and other needful buildings. In other words, military installations. And if it's not a military installation, the federal government cannot hold it in that state. And yet we find states out west, particularly west of the Mississippi, where oh, 80, 90 percent of their property is held by the federal government. And the federal government has a chokehold on those states. So those states did not enter the union on the equal footing doctrine that is guaranteed here in the Northwest Ordinance. And so we see 
very early on, and, and at least my research regarding the land acquisitions of the federal government, very early on, the federal government began to violate uh, not only the U.S. Constitution, it was ratified ultimately, but also the Northwest Ordinance, which was the, the means by which and the design by which new states would enter into the Union. Thoughts? Reactions? I, I think I could add a couple of uh, thoughts based upon the, the areas that I talked about. Um, I'm still very curious about this idea of the, the so-called freehold because the, the current legal definition is quite clear that uh, a freehold gives the, the uh, person who has the freehold the unrestricted right to dispose of the property. So you can imagine in this situation, if the governor came into uh, um, <clears throat> the, the Northwest Territory, said, hey, I'm only going to be here for three years, um, I'll tell you what I'll do. Uh, I'll sell off 975 acres uh, uh, of the thousand uh, and put the money in my pocket. And at the end of my, my term of office, I'm out of here. Well, no, that's that's not what the the uh, 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 ordinance says. Uh, it seems to be that it's a non-freehold that they have. Okay, um, I think Jefferson's role in all of this is really fascinating and something that we should focus on, not only with Jefferson, but also all the founders and and all the the individuals that we encounter in history. Um, if you look at this. Here's Jefferson, the uh, the slaveholder, um, plantation owner, um, who actively in politics worked to eliminate slavery. And so you'd say, well, that's a contradiction. Yes, it is. But I think Jefferson, like many of us, operate operated at two levels. One is that abstract general level where you know, his, his motives were absolutely pure and his actions were absolutely pure. And then you get down to Jefferson, um, the man operating at the concrete level, and he, he's got to have his slaves. And, and one of those was probably a slave that he held in a very intimate uh, relationship, uh, Sally Hemings. So I think one of the things we need to understand about all people as we assess them in history is that they, they have feet of clay. Uh, there's only one individual that I've encountered in history, Jesus of Nazareth, who seemed to have been uh, above that. Uh, everybody else has their flaws. And we do ourselves a great disservice when we try to, to raise heroes and, and fail to notice the other side, put people mm -hmm. in balance. Amen. Um, and, and, yes, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that one of the ahead, things please. we need to understand with not only Jefferson, but all the other slaveholders, there was a difficult problem they faced. Slavery, I liken it to kind of getting on the back of a tiger for a very wild ride, and you're holding on to the ears of the tiger and getting a, a, a run. But the question is, how do you get off the tiger safely? Without there being a huge problem and bloodshed, and, and this is what happened in Haiti, that uh, there was this enormous bloody revolution that wound up killing almost all the whites that did not escape from the island. And, and so when you end slavery, how do you end it in a way in which there's not a vast bloodshed that takes place? And can you end it in a way that uh, uh, enables the slaves not to starve? 
Because if you end the plantation system in the South instantly, and then all these slaves are set free, it's like, okay, who's going to cultivate the fields and create the, who's going to bring the crops in? And, and if they don't bring the crops in, how's anybody going to eat? Not just the masters, but the slaves as well. How's anybody going to eat if you disrupt the entire system? So slavery is an easy tiger to get on, but a very difficult one to get off. And not only Jefferson, I think George Washington had discussions with Lafayette about how do we end slavery? And and he admitted this is not an easy thing. It's going to take time, which is why in our Constitution, many, many people criticize the fact that our Constitution countenance slavery. Well, it saw that slavery would end and believed slavery would end in a, if you gave it the time, if you gave it enough time, and they believed 20 years would, would have brought an end to the need for the slave trade and slavery itself would ultimately die out. Uh, but in a natural way in which slaves, when they're manumitted, they can gain a job. And so not uh, abolishing slavery all at once. And you've got all these freed slaves that don't have anywhere to work and any food to eat and any, you know, all of that, that kind of problem. So anyway, just just a, a thought about what, what people today, looking back on that era, era don't understand and think about the difficulty of ending slavery by uh, fiat uh, abolition at, at one moment. I think that's a very, very important point because we clearly are, are still uh, wrestling with the, the residue of, of the uh, uh, era of slavery. Um, you know, and, and we're, we're uh, anxious to, to try to find fault and, and all of the fault uh, seems to, to fall on the white um, plantation holders in particular but uh, unfortunately, it's been generalized, I think, to all uh, white members of society, which is a, a huge injustice. Mm. I mean, slavery is a shared shared sin. We have to understand that slavery existed well before uh, uh, it came to uh, the shores of the New World. And uh, in particular, that it existed uh, within Africa. It was a, a mode of... of uh, conflict between tribes in Africa. Um, and yes, when the English in particular, and the Spanish and Portuguese were also a part of this, um, came along, they took advantage of an existing situation. And if you want to find an initial cause, it's the British crown that encouraged slavery mm. because they were interested in the revenues that could be produced through taxation. Uh, from these these colonial activities, so uh, it's a very very complicated issue. It's it's not the simple issue that that uh, demagogues uh, presented as uh, today. Amen. Yeah. Well, what, One of the things you, that I think about ahead, from Mike. a different perspective, uh, you know, if we today look at the things the government is doing, and we've got concerns about them taking too much control over our lives and everything like that. And uh, we found ourselves in a place where we were enslaved by a tyrannical government. And I'm not saying, uh, you know, I know that there are distinctions between the historical context and, and the scenario that I'm proposing. But I think that it's still a valid point. If we were in that position where we were enslaved by a tyrannical government and therefore dependent upon them for a lot of things. And they said, all right, guys, uh, you know, we think that this is wrong. And, uh, 
you know, we'll, we'll get you out of it. How's 20 years sound? I think our answer would be, <laughs> how about no? <laughs> and if they told us, oh, well, then, you know, you're not going to have a way to eat or anything. I think a lot of us would say, yeah, we'll figure it out. We're good. I, I'm, I'm not good with 20 years. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I understand that. How about how about the the current system of slavery that is not uh, you know 100 slavery, but let's talk about Social Security. Fifteen percent of your income every year for your entire working life is taken from you. Fifteen percent by the Social Security, and supposedly they're going to give it back to you. Of course, not with a good return on investment at all, because if you invested in anything, anything at all, just bonds or whatever, you could have made far more than you would make under the Social Security system. But uh, what if uh, it was decided, let's bring an end to the Social Security system because it's a form of slavery, not 100 percent slavery, it's a 15 percent slavery, but it's terrible. We shouldn't have any slavery whatsoever. Now, what is that going to do to the people who have become dependent or the people who have retired and they're relying on that stream of income that their Social Security check on a monthly basis. What, what if we abolished it uh, just right now? Just It's, it's done. <laughs> no more Social Security. I guess you'd have a- to find the, the analogous, um, the analogous uh, part to these are people who have already paid into that system, right? Right. So their their dollars, their hard-earned dollars are already in that system with an expectation that they're receiving that in return. Mm-hmm. And for them to receive nothing for something that they've paid in, I guess you'd have to find the analogous counterpart in the other scenario as to who would be that person that paid in. And, and, and you've got that wild card factor that, right. <laughs> you know, when a person is enslaved, it's this other guy is going to get the raw end of the deal. That's right. There, <laughs> you know? there is, a, is a little bit of analogous, not exactly analogous, but when someone, not every slave owner did this, but many slave owners that had a, a godly system of thinking said when a slave becomes old and is no longer going to be able to work in the field, I'm going to continue to maintain that slave. That slave will be fed. That slave will be housed. That slave will be clothed. I will continue to to care for them into their old age when they're no longer able to do much of anything on the farm. And I I don't know the exact numbers, but I understand when Washington came back from serving his two terms as president, only about half of the people that he had as slaves there at his Mount Vernon plantation were actively able to work in the field. So he had a whole lot of people that he had to support, <laughs> and he was not about to sell them into, you know, sell them down river. Uh, he was going to care for them. Uh, so that's not an exact analogy, but there is some connection there. If you have abolition, then all of a sudden, uh, you know, eighty-year-old slave, uh, hmm, he's set free, but can he actually take care of himself at this point in his life? And, and well, actually, the slave thrive? owner have already received the benefit from that slave's work, and it's sort of like that benefit is being paid out yes, upon work they, already received. Right. So he's paying back that eighty-year-old by caring for him uh, in his old age. And, and again, yeah. not that every slave owner did that, but uh, again, that's one of those aspects. It's hard for us to get our our, our heads around. Yeah. Well, one of the like, one of the go ahead. Uh, if I if I can kind of extend this to the area of involuntary servitude, because you know there's a great deal of, of emphasis uh, in the uh, um, Northwest Ordinance on the the issue of slavery, no slavery, but it also mentions involuntary servitude, and you know we could we could look at the role that the the typical taxpayer plays. Uh, 
in the United States as being one of involuntary servitude. Um, certainly, the comeback to that w- will be, well, if you're going to have government, you have to pay for it. Absolutely. Let's let's agree to that. But then say, well, what government services are legitimate and which are not? To me, the only legitimate government services are those that are spelled out in social contracts, such as the Constitution of the United States. So anything beyond that represents involuntary servitude. And as has been uh, noted by, I believe it was the Heritage Foundation, perhaps as much as 95% of the outlay uh, of the federal government has to do with with. Uh, unconstitutional activities that the uh, uh, the federal government has become involved in, hmm. uh, mainly under the label of the so-called general welfare. That's involuntary <laughs> servitude. Amen. And by the way, I don't consent to paying for the FBI. I, I, I want to get rid of the FBI. These, these people are very evil. I'd like to get rid of the EPA and the IRS and the Department of Education. Just about all the alphabet soup agencies, I don't consent to pay any taxes to support any of those. Do, do I have a uh, you know a role to step out of this? <laughs> well, according to the Constitution and this this idea that we're all uh, responsible for pay, for paying an equal, not a progressive amount, an equal amount for the cost of government, then no, you would not because you cannot go back into the Constitution and find any place where the the federal Constitution uh, identifies that the federal government has anything to do with education. This is clearly a corruption of the uh, the Constitution of the United States. That sort of brings me back to one of the points you made in your portion, Pastor Whitney. You were talking about uh, the people who don't own property having the, the right to vote and the problems that could cause. And I just want to pose a hypothetical on the other end from a different perspective. Uh, Suppose you have this guy, and he may or may not have existed at some point in time. He's in his late 20s. He's completely self-made. He doesn't come from any sort of money whatsoever. Uh, He's he's worked hard and earned what he's got. He's a a young professional. And in his late 20s, he does not currently own property. Uh, Maybe he's figuring out where he wants to live and hasn't picked out a house yet, Quite hasn't quite settled yet. Uh, but he pays tens of thousands of dollars a year in state and federal income taxes, payroll taxes, sales taxes, but doesn't pay any property taxes because he doesn't doesn't own a home yet. He doesn't hasn't figured out where he wants to live. Then there's Johnny Doe down the street who owns a piece of property that his parents or his grandparents gave him, but he pays less in taxes. Um, what would be the, the answer to something like that as far as the guy who pays tens of thousands doesn't get a say? Excellent point, Mike. And and my my only point in bringing that up was the idea that uh, not the people who pay taxes, but the people who don't pay any taxes. In other words, yeah. I, I don't think the, you're right. The land is not a good measure. In that day, perhaps it was a good measure of whether you're paying taxes. Today, it's not. But if you could just simply say, hey, if you pay no taxes at all, you don't pay a federal income tax and, and so on, then you don't get to vote in any federal election. You don't pay any state taxes. Well, you don't get to vote in any state election. In fact, we ought to connect. And this is a difficult thing. We've got employees of the federal government, employees of the state government who, you know, they get more money into their paycheck than, uh, you know, so they get to vote to increase their paycheck. And I'm not sure how to solve that problem, but that. They're not exactly welfare because they're working for that money. 
But on the other hand, their votes are going to tend to want to increase the budgets that are going to increase their salary. In other words, more money out of the pockets of the producers because it's only the government doesn't produce anything except messes, it appears to me. But anyway, the producers are actually doing something that is going to create wealth. The government is only taking from the producers and redistributing that to their own employees. So I don't know the exact measure. Their measure was land ownership. But I think it would be wise if we had a, a, a system by which if someone has no skin in the game, they pay no taxes whatsoever, sorry that they don't get to vote. It would seem they'd have a skewed view if they pay no taxes as to whether we should spend more money on different things, because what do they care? I I get that. The second one actually seems even more rotten, unfortunately, uh, even though those are the people who are working, because it seems like a conflict of interest. There's all kinds of rules about whether, uh, you know, for example, uh, a school district board, if they wanted to sell property and they were were using uh, a real estate broker or agent who is related to somebody on the school board and they were going to benefit from it, then they'd have to disclose that at the outset and they'd probably have to recuse themselves from that vote. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems you know, strikingly similar to something like that, doesn't it? Yes. So what do both of you hear or have read in the, the school textbooks uh, about poll taxes? Uh, are they just or are they unjust? According to the textbooks. Uh, dramatically unjust and incredible. Dramatically unjust. Right? Yes. Yep. Incredible. Okay. Now, what is a poll tax? A poll if you're going to vote, is, you're going to pay a certain amount to you're vote. Gonna pay, you're going to pay your share, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. In a sense, a poll tax is the most justifiable tax that can be uh, levied. Uh, if you look at taxation as being a legitimate payment for the services of government because basically it's it's a head tax and and it doesn't deny any of the rights other than the privilege of voting it doesn't deny any rights uh if you if uh, uh you can't pay the poll tax you still have freedom of speech you still have freedom of religion and all the rest of that you still have the protection by the way, of the armed services of uh, the United States and so forth. So what's so bad about poll tax? I think we've got to start giving poll tax a better name. I guess you'd have to undo that amendment to the Constitution then, right? Yeah. Well, good thought, because I know not always, but in many cases, the poll taxes were used to simply pay the expense of running the election. That is, you got poll workers and you got, uh, you know, all the things that are involved in running an election that the people who are making the vote are actually paying that portion of of the budget that's required to conduct the election. And, you know, uh, arguments for and against that have obviously been, been aired. But I, I hear your point and I think it's a valid point. Some of it goes to how motivated you are, too, right? Because when you're thinking about how these people are voting, because you, know, you talk about people who don't have a uh, tremendous amount of money getting their say in the policies and everything like that. I know that some people look at things and they say, well, I'm here right now. I don't plan to be here forever. I want to be successful. So I'm going to vote for policies that would impact me positively if I'm able to achieve that success. Uh, but the people who have been put into that vic- victim mentality where 
they're stuck there. They're always going to be there. They're a, a victim of the system. Uh, they're going to vote a lot differently. Well, that uh, brings the point to why we exist here. We, the people, the Constitution matters to educate the electorate, the people. We, the people, are the ones that can take back uh, our government to the standard that our Constitution established. And so we encourage you to invite your friends to our show, 8 o'clock on Friday mornings, We, the People, the Constitution Matters. Go to our website, 1180wfyl.com. Click on the button for podcasts. We're at the very bottom. We, the people, the Constitution Matters. We enjoy uh, enjoy sharing this with you and encourage you to spread the word so that we can retake our constitutional republic.